Hello and welcome to ClassicalPodcast.com. I'm Lou Smoley, and I'm here to tell you that more than 10 years, we have been streaming free programs of classical music not often heard in the concert hall or on other podcasts or radio programs, and this is all thanks to your generous donations. In order to ensure that our unique programs continue, we appreciate your ongoing support. We welcome donations, large or small, and remind you that because we are a nonprofit organization, your contributions are fully tax-deductible. Thank you so much for helping us to make ClassicalPodcasts.com one of the most listened-to websites of its kind in the world. Hello and welcome to this edition of Buried Treasure. I'm Lou Smoley, and today we present part seven of our eight-part series on the American Piano Concerto. Our first composer, John Carigliano, has a substantial reputation as a composer. Uh, he is widely celebrated for his many works, which have been written over a 40-year period uh, particularly uh, the Ghost of Versailles, the opera that was commissioned by the Metropolitan Opera of New York in 1991. But there have been a multiplicity of works, symphonies, concertos, um, and a whole host of other instrumental works, and some film music. His numerous scores have often won acclaim, such as several Grammy Awards. Curiously enough, his piano concerto, written in 1968, didn't start out uh, as popular as it later became. It's a substantial work, taking more than half hour to perform, uh, and is in four movements, although the last two are joined without break. Stylistically, the work has certain Bartokian characteristics evidenced in its spiky character, offset by a Rachmaninoff-like or even Malarian lyricism. Gramophone's Edward Greenfield writes as follows, the substantial opening allegro, much the longest, is in modified sonata form with a jazzy first subject prompting heavyweight virtuoso writing for the soloist, quickly leading to a broadly lyrical, meditative second theme. If Carigliano unshamedly uses a freely eclectic style, his writing is consistently positive and energetic, never merely conventional. Both in the first movement and the compact scherzo, the lyrical andante appassionato slow movement, and the rondo finale which follow. Unquote. So let's listen to the Concerto for Piano and Orchestra from 1968, performed by the dedicatee Hilda Sommer at the piano with the San Antonio Symphony, directed by Victor Alessandro. <laughs> ¶¶ 
Our next composer of at least one piano concerto uh, is Charles Warrenen, who was born in 1938 in New York and was one of the world's leading composers. He has written in virtually every form and medium and for the stage, uh, and his music is, can be described in a variety of ways. Some refer to it as maximalist uh, in its luxuriant uh, character. Uh, both powerful harmonies and elegant craftsmanship combine in his music. We're going to hear the third piano concerto of Charles Warrenen from 1983. It's in the usual three movements, assuming that usual is the right word to use here. Uh, the first movement contains, as I referenced, powerful cross rhythms. The third is percussive, violent, sometimes wild and furious. Our piano soloist is Garrick Olson with the San Francisco Symphony directed by Herbert Blomstedt. The third piano concerto of Charles Warrenen. <laughs>
after hearing the music of Warrenen, uh, our next composer is certainly a much tamer and less prone to overdramatic intensities. Uh, and that composer is Edward Burlingham Hill, one of the old school, hailed from the 19th century when he was born in 1872. He died in 1960. This is another composer from the distant past who is no longer before the general public, unfortunately, uh, because of the virulent changes in style that occurred during his lifetime, which made his music seem old-fashioned to uh, the audience, say, of the 50s and 60s of the last century. But it was no wonder that he'd become a musician uh, and uh, one, I think that in his lifetime, at least toward the center of it, he uh, achieved some fame. He was the grandson of the president of Harvard uh, and a son of a chemistry professor there. Not only did Hill study at Harvard, but he later became a distinguished professor of music uh, his pupils read like a who's who of American music. Leonard Bernstein, Walter Piston, Roger Sessions, Randall Thompson, Virgil Thompson, and Elliot Carter among them. In later years, he would be considered one of the so-called lost generation of American composers, of which there were many, all too many. We're going to listen to one of the two brief concertinos for piano and orchestra that Hill wrote this one, the second, uh, between 1938 and 1939. In fact, its first and only recording, uh, made in 2014, was the first time uh, that audiences uh, were able to listen to this work. It had not been premiered, it had not been uh, established whatsoever. Uh, only in uh, an arrangement for two pianos at a concert that marked the retirement of Professor Hill from Harvard. But I think it gives you both a good idea of Hill's uh, standing in the community that he wrote in and his style as a composer bereft of popularity in his later years due to so many changes in compositional style uh, over his lifetime. Anton Nell is the pianist with the Austin Symphony Orchestra directed by Peter Bay in Edward Burlingame Hill's second concertino for piano and orchestra, opus 44, from 1938 to 39.
Our next and last composer in the seventh part of our eight-part series on the American Piano Concerto is Lee Hoiby. He was born in Wisconsin in 1926. He wrote primarily songs, some operas which became noted, such as The Scarf from 1958, A Month in the Country, Summer and Smoke, and The Tempest, which he wrote in 1986. Hoiby died in 2011, uh, and he did write piano music because he was a pianist as well as a fine uh, composer of song. He wrote two concertos. We're going to hear the first of which, Opus 17, which was written in 1958. The concerto is in three movements. They're marked moderato, allegro, giocoso. Second movement, lento, espressivo. And the final movement is a rondo, marked presto. The influence of jazz on Hoiby's music is apparent from the beginning of the concerto. Hoiby tells us that the piano begins with a quiet statement of the principal theme, which is then exchanged with the orchestra and led through several keys without transition directly to the second subject in tempo giusto. There's a closing section where two new motives appear at the same time. Development of all this material follows, leading to a solo piano cadenza and a brief summarization that recapitulates, uh, followed by a coda. Again, in Hoiby's own words, the Lento second movement is by turns lyrical, contemplative, rhapsodic, with an embellished cadenza prominent in the early pages. Again, the composer. The Allegro Vivo finale offers a dancing 7-8 solo piano figure by way of a main theme, which is counterpointed by a separate rhythm for muted brass. This theme is alternated with two contrasting sections in the sonata rondo fashion. The last pages of the concerto are marked by steadily increasing momentum, leading to a fortissimo close. Our soloist is John Atkins at the piano with the Polish National Radio Orchestra, directed by Jan Krenz, to perform Lee Hoiby's Piano Concerto No. 1, Opus 17, from 1958.
And so, with Lee Hoiby's first piano concerto, we end our seventh program of eight uh, on the American Piano Concerto. The last program uh, will be aired at some time in the future, uh, and it will include some surprises. And so, rather than tell you about it in detail, I will say that we'll have probably the greatest American piano concerto performed by its great advocate, in fact, the composer's great advocate at the piano. No more of that now. I might also mention that one of the featured concertos on the last program will be one by an American composer also known as Hoiby was for his songs. And then finally, we're going to close the series with certainly one of the great piano concertos written by an American in the 20th century. And I, you'll know about who that is uh, when you listen to the program. So until then, this has been Lou Smoley for Buried Treasure. And please don't forget to make a contribution to the website to keep it a free service. Just go to our homepage at classicalpodcasts.com where you can donate any amount through PayPal.